I think when the Spirit breathes life back into the lungs of the church in your city, it's going to look like joy, not intensity. And that's an important distinction because historically some revivals have looked like intensity. They've looked like a group of people saying apathy has won the day. And so we have to pull ourselves together and get serious about seeking this stuff again. It's this intensity that drives it. But this is London. I mean, you know how to do intensity. That's what got you here, right? That's what keeps you here. No one moves to London to take it easy and put their feet up, right? And so when the Spirit fills people who know how to do intensity, it looks like joy. It looks like an old priest who's seen it all dancing and laughing like a wild young kid again. Because London has no idea where you get that. An anxious city has no idea where that comes from. Or, or there's no place we can reach inside of us and pull that out. That has to come from another world altogether. G.K. Chesterton said this. It's where we'll start and end. It is the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saints who contradict it most. Every generation is won by the saints who contradict their time. Is there a greater contradiction than non-circumstantial, unstealable, unexplainable joy? So that takes us back to Mark chapter 2 one more time. Don't you remember what David did when he was hungry? So maybe for the most astute observer, for the person who's paying the most attention, the really interesting part of Jesus' retelling of David's bread story is the final line. And he also gave some to his companions. Let me read all of verse 26 just to jog your memory. Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful for only the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Now, the reason that's so interesting is because if you flip back to 1 Samuel chapter 21 and you read the story, there's actually no mention of David sharing the bread with anybody else. So I guess he could have eaten the five loaves of bread all by himself, but that's a gluten problem even if you don't have a gluten problem, right? (laughs) And odds are God is not making a theological error since he is the one referencing the story. But if you continue reading in the story and you get into 1 Samuel chapter 22, when the Bible, the the important thing you need to know about the chapters and verses of the Bible is that when the Bible was originally written, those weren't in there. They got added in later. And I just want to humbly suggest that they were added in at the wrong place in this particular story. Because the first couple of verses of 1 Samuel 22 are actually a continuation of the story that was being told in 1 Samuel 21. Let me read them to you. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. Now, study reveals that these were the people that David shared the bread from the most holy place with. He took it to the distressed, the in debt, and the discontented. Approximately 400 people in all. Here's the fundamental claim Jesus is making when he references this story to the priests who are accusing him. Just as David had the authority to break the rules and share this feast with his army, so I have the authority to break the rules and share this feast with my disciples. So how do you live in a season of joy? You eat the bread, you take your sword, 
And then finally, you share the bread. And here's what sharing the bread looks like. It looks like love, kinship, suffering, and intimacy. That's a map of where we're going in the next few minutes. Love, kinship, suffering, and intimacy. This is what it means to share the bread from the most holy place. So let's jump right in. First of all, sharing the bread looks like love. Destitute, in debt, and discontented. That sounds a lot like the church, right? That sounds like a description of the New Testament church. Share the bread means that the power of the Spirit is found in sharing the very best of what you have with the common, underwhelming, flaky people sitting around you right now. Sharing the bread means real, costly love for one another. The power of the Spirit is tied inseparably to real, costly love for one another. In John 17, the last night of Jesus' life, the last prayer he prays with his disciples is for unity within the church. May they be one even as we are one. That's not a prayer for general goodwill across the globe toward Christians. It is so much more tangible than that. He's saying, Father, may they have the same unity among them as the three persons of the one God have in their community. This is about real, tangible, acted out, felt love for one another. And then if you read on into the letters of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 14. Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. You see, in the early church, they never imitated the miracles of Jesus without equally imitating the love of Jesus. They moved toward pain, toward the mess, toward the needs that existed in one another. They learned what it meant to forgive and to ask for forgiveness. They saw the worst in each other, and then they kept on choosing love. And that's because power always serves love, never the other way around. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount to those who exercise spiritual power but did not do so through love? He says, I never knew you. See, power is a compelling idea and it's a thrilling practice. Love is a compelling idea and it is an often inconvenient practice. I started the new year with this word about an increase of power, the Spirit's power. And so I went into the first Sunday, last Sunday, First Sunday of the new year in my community, so expectant for what God would do. But then by Sunday night, all of that enthusiasm was ground down into just normal human exhaustion. We finished our last service of the evening, and I was tired. I was emotionally drained. I honestly didn't feel like the talk had landed quite like I hoped. I was ready to go home. And then this single mother with two teenage daughters approached me, and she started talking to me. She'd never been to our church before. She wanted to know how to get involved. She wanted to know what ministries might be available for her children. All the questions that you want to hear as a pastor. And honestly, as quickly as I could, I learned her name and I passed her off to someone else on my team. And I went home and I ordered takeout and I poured myself a glass of wine. And just as I did, I just heard the whisper of the voice of Jesus in my ear say, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. Power gets put in the hands of those who are mature in love. I just heard this refrain, Tyler, love my people. Love my people. Love my people. 
You see, power always serves love, never the other way around. That's something I'm still trying to learn. Are you eager for manifestations of the Spirit? Do you want to see revival? Do you want to see signs and wonders? Do you want to see the fire poured out like we were just singing about? Then channel all of your energy into loving the really underwhelming people sitting around you right now. Channel all of your energy into loving those that are hardest for you to love, the most uninspiring, unrewarding, and uncomfortable for you to love. Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, here's the pathway. Strive to excel in building up the church. If you want more of the Spirit, then listen to one another. Ask really good questions and then patiently listen. Be patient with one another. Actually have time for each other. Invite someone else in. Inconvenience yourself. Spread out your friend group. Change your lunch plans to include someone else. Simply, humbly, intentionally, actively choose love. God rarely gives power to those who will hurt one another with it. He will not put power tools in the hands of children. He's too good of a father for that. Power always serves love, never the other way around. So in the early church, this kind of love I'm talking about, it got expressed through feasting. And they had a number of feasts that we've kind of forgotten in the early church. We remember the formal table, but they also had what was called the agape feast, where the early church gathered once a week, and they would practice what would feel like a formal communion liturgy over a church potluck. It was just as holy to break bread with one another as it was to take of the bread, dip it in the cup, and eat. They also had a meal called the Sacrifice of Thanksgiving, where uh, someone who was in the midst of a season of hardship or grief or mourning would bring an offering to the temple. This is in the book of Leviticus. And they would make an, an animal sacrifice at the temple like anyone would at any other time, but it was called the Sacrifice of Thanksgiving because the priest, instead of burning up the sacrifice, would actually cook the sacrifice and prepare it as a feast. And then the whole community would gather around that person, breaking bread together, a prophetic way of saying, even in the midst of this, we will give thanks and we will do it together. You see, Jesus welcomes you into the most holy place by his victory to share in his sacred bread, but it's not a table for one. It's a communal table. It's the biggest, longest banquet table you can imagine with a seat reserved for anyone who will come. Joy is a feast on the bread of life. And the way to share that bread looks like humbly, daily, intentional choices to love one another. Do you want to know joy? Then share the bread. Secondly, joy, or I'm sorry, sharing the bread looks like kinship. So there's a Franciscan priest named Gregory Boyle who works with a marginalized uh, community in inner city Los Angeles, a, drug, or a gang rehabilitation program. And in his most recent book, he tells the story of a young man named Cruz. And I want to read you just a part of that story. Cruz spent his last dollars taking a Metrolink train 60 miles to Los Angeles from San Bernardino, where he had located his lady and newborn to avoid the dangers and desperation of his previous gang life. He had a part-time job, but could not get his boss to give him more hours. Now he sits in my office, rattling off a list of the pressures and needs of his family with no safety net in sight but me. He speaks of no food in the fridge, no lights, landlord looming, no bus fare. When he finishes his breathless account, Cruz stops. Shaken and exhausted, he grows teary-eyed and says quietly, I just keep waiting. For what, son? I ask. For the last to be first. 
Can't that be now? I mean, at least here, at least among us, at least in this church, can't that be now? Can't there be a community in a corner of this city where the last are actually first right now? David took the most holy, the most honored, the most treasured bread to who? The destitute, the in debt, and the discontent. And those were not just figurative categories. They are literal ones. This is a three-word summary of the, those socioeconomically disadvantaged by King Saul's reign. If you study the history, this is those who had been pushed to the margins of their society by the political and economic system that had been set up. God has always built his kingdom through the marginalized because there's something about discomfort in this world that sharpens our appetite for the next one. God will continue to build his kingdom through the marginalized because there's something about discomfort in this world that will always sharpen our appetite for the next one. Jesus once told a really strange story called the rich man and Lazarus. That's what it's commonly known as anyway. It's in Luke chapter 16. It goes like this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now the parable jumps from here to the death of both men. The poor man Lazarus is in heaven. The rich man is in hell, but he can see heaven far off in the distance. And so he cries out to Abraham and he says, I beg you, Father. Send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And then Jesus closed in prayer and the credits roll. That's a strange story, right? It's honestly quite an unsettling one. At first glance, the most obvious conclusion you would draw is that the rich man has been condemned because he was not merciful. But I would just encourage you to push past the first glance and look a little bit closer. The rich man, dressed in purple of royalty, is living in luxury. He allows Lazarus, a homeless man with leprosy, to live permanently at his front gate and eat his excess food. So just think about that. This is the front gate of a wealthy man's private residence. The movers and shakers of the Jerusalem finance world are coming and going from this place in their chariots. And each time they enter his home, they are passing a homeless leper. Now, homelessness is one thing, but leprosy, I mean, that, that is a skin disease that was not only considered grotesque, but it was also thought to be a sign of inward spiritual uncleanness. It was thought to be a curse from God. Lepers were not even allowed inside the temple. And this rich man was humble enough and merciful enough to associate with Lazarus, to let him sleep at his gate, to feed him the leftover filet mignon from all of his business dinners. On some level, he is taking social risk to care for this man. How many of you have a homeless, terminally ill patient living on your front steps? So this man took care of the needs of the poor. So there must be something beyond just a lack of mercy. Well, notice what Jesus names the leper, Lazarus. That's the name of Jesus' closest friend, closer even than a brother. And did you catch the rich man's request? Send Lazarus to my five brothers. 
even after this life, he's still urgently concerned for his siblings, his people, on a deeper level than he's ever been concerned for the man that he's now trying to use as a messenger. To summarize the theologian Leonard Sweet, the rich man is condemned because he thought he had five brothers when God had actually given him six. See, this wasn't a sin of mercy. He helped Lazarus. It was a sin of motive. He never saw him as family. He did not embrace Lazarus all the way in as brother. He didn't welcome him all the way into his table so that he could be counted as an equal. He didn't include him on his real community. He kept him in a separate space as a particular project. He stopped short of kinship. Why? Because isolated acts of mercy and service are easier than welcoming someone all the way in so that they can become family. Why does your teacher eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, the Pharisees were never offended that Jesus served the poor. They were okay with him being a missionary to the marginalized. What they weren't okay with was when he welcomed them to his table, when he shared with them as equals. That was a step too far. Kinship was a step too far. I was riding the subway in New York one day last summer, and it's quite common to be asked for money on the subway system in my city. And that's because it's, it's really the only place, if you don't have a home, that you can be guaranteed to find some air conditioning in the summer and some heat during the winter. And so a lot of the homeless population of New York spends their entire day just riding back and forth underground. But this one particular guy, he wasn't just asking for money. He was verbally accosting all the passengers on my train car. He was cursing everybody out for not seeing him, for not caring. He was clearly unstable, potentially violent. And so everyone on the train, including myself, is just kind of averting our attention and waiting for it to end. Fast forward about a month after that experience, and a guy named Chadwick from my community walks up to me with this guy standing next to him during the response time after one of our, uh, in one of our services and asked me to join him in praying for him. He said, hey, Tyler, I want you to meet Mike. And I could not believe it. There he was, the unhinged guy from the subway, now receiving prayer at the front of the church. And it turns out that Chadwick had been in the exact situation I was in. He was on a train car. This guy was going ballistic and belligerent in the middle of the train car. Only he did not divert his eyes. He engaged him in a conversation. And he learned his name. And he shared a couple of meals with him. And he tried to help provide some sustainable aid for him. And then eventually he invited Mike to church. Now that was in late August. Mike is still there every Sunday both services. He knows everybody by name and everybody knows him by name. Members of our community have fed him when he had nothing. They've helped him find employment so that he went from panhandling on the street to legal, uh, to a legal wage. They helped him find a room in a flat. So for the first time in years, he's no longer sleeping on the bench near our church, but he's sleeping under a roof that he's actually paying for. He's reconnected with a family that he was estranged from. Secret anonymous gifts have been passed along to him like boots for this winter. This year on Christmas night, he was watching a Chris. He fell asleep on someone's couch in between two members of our community watching a rom like a Christmas rom-com with them. Currently, there's a plot to save up enough cash to get him some professional dental work because his teeth are quite bad from over a decade without having access to a bathroom. His entire countenance has changed. 
He's now one of the lightest, most talkative, most excited guys in our community. I cannot believe it. And it's, it's one of the most beautiful stories I've ever seen. And I'm the guy that averted my attention and pretended not to notice. But my community welcomed him all the way in his family. And so I can tell you, not just from the teachings of Jesus, but also from my personal experience, that kinship still changes everything. And that kinship still, in the end, produces joy. This is what it means to share the bread. To go from the most holy place with a loaf under your arm, distributing it anywhere and everywhere around the city. Sharing the bread also looks like suffering. Bit of a record scratch there, right? I felt like we had some momentum going. How did suffering sneak into the equation? K.P. Yohannan founded an organization called Gospel for Asia, which has planted churches in many of the countries in the Eastern Hemisphere which are most hostile to the gospel. And when that organization grew enough that it had a bit of a reputation, he was invited into the Western world to speak into the Western church. And on his first trip into the West, this was his observation about the difference between the church in the East and the West. I found that believers in the West are ready to get involved in almost any activity which looks spiritual, but allows them to escape their real responsibility to the gospel. He found a bunch of churches that were celebrating the sentiments of Jesus without actually walking the way of Jesus. See, the first believers weren't called Christians, they were called followers of the way, because that's how seriously they took actually keeping in step with the way that Jesus lived. But sadly, the way of Jesus has become nothing more than a footnote at the bottom of the church of our time. We tend to be much more interested in our preferred brand of Christian consumerism or spiritual entertainment than walking the way that Jesus walked. The church of our day has dismissed suffering, and in the process, we've also dismissed a biblical life. Do you want to know where the, story, the stories that feel like or sound like they were ripped off the pages of the New Testament are still happening? The stories of the outpourings of the Spirit's power, it's in parts of the world where suffering is a part of the equation. Uh, to be called an apostle in the Ugandan church, you have to have raised someone from the dead. That's the entrance requirement. Just to get an application in. See, when we strip our conception of Jesus all out from suffering, we also strip much of the life away as, as well. And lasting legacy is tied to suffering. Everyone who has ever shaped history has done so through suffering. They had something outside of themselves worth suffering for. This is an inseparable part of following Jesus. Just look at the, the most visible leaders of the early church, John, Peter, and Paul. In Acts chapter 5, John and Peter get flogged for talking about Jesus, and then we read this. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name in Acts chapter 9, Paul gets blinded by a heavenly light, and then God sends Ananias to restore his sight along with this encouraging message. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Paul, who began his life oppressing and imprisoning the early church, ends his life in prison, suffering on behalf of the same community. Following Jesus includes taking up your cross. The English word passion comes from the Latin word passio, which means willing to suffer for. I learned that from you. That's part of the DNA of this community. What are you passionate about? What are you willing to suffer for, honestly?
Maybe you'll suffer for some degree or for a few career accolades. Maybe you'll engage some level of suffering to make your body look the way that you want it to. Maybe you'll suffer to prove yourself, whatever that might mean for you. See, what you have to see is that we live in cities that suffer for things with an expiration date. Because no one cares about your resume at your funeral and no one's summer body looks tight in the nursing home and no one is paying attention to what you're trying to prove except for you. In a city obsessed with comfort and averse to suffering, those who live by passion will shape the narrative. They will shape history. So as you receive a fresh feeling of joy, what's going to happen is that's going to add stamina to your hope. And, and I believe that many individuals in this room are people that at one point were full of passion, a vision of life big enough that you were ready to suffer for it, but somewhere along the way that's gotten traded in for a more comfortable version. And right now, I think that the Spirit might just be stirring up the, the full potency of the first thing again. A longing for a radical kind of life. One that has the capacity to dance with joy on top of an empty tomb, but also has the stamina to carry a heavy cross up a steep hill. See, sharing the bread requires that we say yes to joy and also yes to suffering. Have you forgotten the legacy that you're a part of? Can I just take you back to it? This is the end of Hebrews chapter 11. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and whose power and powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced years in flogging and even chains in imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the legacy you're a part of. So joy is an invitation to pull up a chair at the feast that never ends. And in our already not yet half-redeemed world, joy assures us of the future so that our life can be built on sure future promises. And that means that we then have the endurance to suffer in love for other people in the meantime. Sharing the bread means willing suffering for a vision that's bigger than yourself. And then finally, sharing the bread looks like intimacy. There's one more occasion mentioned in Scripture where David literally distributes bread to others. And it's in 2 Samuel chapter 6, right after his coronation as king, when he's no longer a fugitive on the run, but now he's a king being paraded into a city uh, among crowds who are anxious for him to take his throne. The whole thing's quite a spectacle, and then it ends with party favors. 
This is 2 Samuel 6, verse 19. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. Now here's a tip when reading the Bible. Whenever you come across a detail that seems really weird that you want to skip over, pay attention, because there's probably something in there. So when reading this passage, the question you should be asking is, what's the deal with the raisin cakes? Well, this was a world before refined sugar, so fruit was the sweetener. Preserved fruit, like raisins, were stored away for baking. In the Torah, raisins are forbidden in some of the cleansing and purity practices for the special feasts, or they were, all, they were forbidden when you were cleansing yourself for fasting or to become, come before the presence of God. Now, that's significant because fasting is a spiritual posture of contending. Feasting is a spiritual posture of victory, of joy. So these raisin cakes are being distributed to the people as a prophetic symbol from the hand of David. He's giving them out as a way of saying, I've won a spiritual victory, and now I'm sharing the spoils of that spiritual victory with anyone and everyone who will take, with the whole city. It's exactly what Jesus is doing when he walks through a field with his disciples, allowing them to pick the heads off of grain on the Sabbath. He's saying, I've been in the desert for 40 days winning a spiritual victory, and so I'm going to now share the spoils of that spiritual victory with all of my followers. But it doesn't even stop there. Raisin cakes are named in the Song of Solomon as an aphrodisiac. They're a symbol of intimacy in the scripture. But it wasn't intimacy between lovers. This was a symbol of joy to be found and free access to the most holy place, to the presence of God. A place where we could share the spoils of intimacy with God, with the whole city. In a theological sense, that's what Jesus won for us. He won for us a restored union with God that can never be taken away. But in spite of that, don't most of us still feel near or, near or far from God based on our performance? Right? I, no matter how many times I recite the right things, I still feel closer to God when I'm making good moral decisions, and I feel more distant from God when I'm making bad moral decisions. We cannot, on our own strength, unwind our emotions from our addiction to our own performance, and that's why the very first thing the Spirit does is wash your obsession and your performance with the love of God. Bernard of Clairvaux, the 12th century mystic, said the, holy, the kiss of God is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the kiss of God, the very experience of his love. And this is not a new idea. In the book of Ezekiel, God says to his people, I spread the corner of my garment over you and cover your naked body. Spread the corner of my garment over you. That is a sexual metaphor. It is jarring biblical imagery to say God's not only here to tell us that he loves us, he offers us an experience of that love. Are you squirming and uncomfortable yet? I'm going to keep going. You don't fast while the bridegroom is with you. Those are the words of Jesus. Now, if you know your stuff, you know that we are called the bride of Christ, you and me. We're not just called his followers. We're called his lovers, the ones he reserves the greatest intimacy for. There have been more commentaries written on the book of Song of Solomon, a book of sexual imagery about intimacy with God, than any other book in the Bible, more than about Genesis more than about Paul's letters, more even than the Gospels about the life of Jesus. Why? Because this is a book about the experience of his love. The Holy Spirit is the experience of God's love. 
See, the Spirit takes biblical rumors and makes them felt realities in our lives. The Scripture teaches me that the Father loves me unconditionally. The Spirit gives me the experience of the Father's unconditional love. The Scripture teaches me that that God is Father, but the Spirit makes that real to me. The Scripture teaches me that God is love. The Spirit makes that real to me. The Scripture teaches me that God is running out to meet me. He's clothing me in a robe. He's putting a ring on my finger, and he's throwing a party in my honor. The Spirit is the one that makes that real to me. See, bread, that's sustenance. We need it for survival. Raisin cakes, that's delicacy. They're extravagant. It's an indulgence. It's more than we need. God didn't design you for spiritual survival. When Jesus promises wedding feast, he means wedding feast. And a season of joy is not about spiritual survival. It is an invitation into extravagant intimacy with God. And the fruit of that intimacy, the treasures God gives you in those moments of experience with him, we share those with one another too. That's what David was doing when he was distributing these cakes to anyone that would take him. He's saying, I've tasted of a joyful feast, but it's not just for me, it's for the whole city. In a season of joy, the treasures of your intimacy with God then get spread out into the city around you everywhere you go. Share the bread. So I just want to close out at least this part of our weekend together with this. About a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, I was coming to the end of this 320-day fast called the Nazarite Vow. And it was the most profound season of my spiritual life, so much so that I really didn't want it to end. Like, as I got to the end, I was almost afraid to stop fasting because what I was tasting in, in, what I, in place of what I'd given up was so much better. But here's what I sense God speaking. I called you into fasting. That, that was my idea, not yours. So you have to trust that what I'm leading you into next will be just as good or even better. So I, I at least tried to do that. Fast forward about six weeks later, it's Easter morning. And Easter morning as a pastor means that you're looking ahead into a long, long day. And it's really fun. It's a, such a fun day, but it is a long one. And so I was up early in the morning sitting on my steps like I told you that I always like to do. And I took a walk with a cup of coffee in my hand. And I was walking through this park uh, in Brooklyn, near my apartment. And, and as I was just walking and praying, I became so overwhelmed by the joy of the Lord that I started dancing at 5.30 in the morning alone with tears streaming down my face in a park. This is one of the advantages to living in a big city is people are doing crazy stuff all the time. So no one bats an eye. So I'm walking, dancing around. This is nothing I've ever experienced before. Remember all the stuff I told you about myself yesterday morning. This is not my personality. And then at the end of that, like the song that I was playing in my headphones stops, and, and I stop dancing. Tears are streaming down my cheeks, and I just heard the voice of the Lord clear as day say to me, this is what I'm doing next. And I think, wow, that was cool. Thanks for that experience, God. I will never tell anyone what just happened. <laughs> and eventually I walked back home and I started getting ready to go to church. My family started waking up. I completely played it cool. I did not give off the vibe that I had been dancing that morning in any way. 
this is what I'm doing next. So I get to our church. I'm in the, the very first service. They start playing the very first song of the first service on Easter Sunday. I've got my eyes closed trying to center myself and enter into the praise. And before we even get to the chorus, I just feel the chair behind me like bump my leg. And I turn and look, and someone is pushing the chairs out of their way to make their way to the front. And it's Kaiser, one of our elders, like the most buttoned up, take me seriously guy. He's our Rich Spence, I'll just say it. He's our Rich Spence. So, So it's him, and he's dancing. He is dancing through the rows of chairs to get to the front of our church. This is something that has never happened before in our community. I open my eyes and I see the least likely candidate imaginable dancing at the front of the church. And it's not like, it is like the DJ just turned on ABBA at this wedding reception. And I've had a few kind of dancing. And I just began to laugh and weep at the same time. This is what I'm doing next. And it's already happening. And I looked at this guy, a committed husband, a father of two, the president of a New York marketing agency, a couple decades into life in New York. He knows a thing or two about intensity. And there it was, everything my city lacks, dancing uncontrollably at the front during the opening worship song. A holy contradiction. A really close friend of mine was sitting a few rows back, and she had invited a a co-worker to come to church with her on Easter Sunday. And she said that she was seeing this happening, and she was thinking, oh my gosh, Kaiser, sit down, sit down, sit down. Because, you know, she's seeing it all through the perspective of her friend. And she said, I'm sitting there thinking, I want to look at We never do this. We never do this. And... And finally, she musters up the courage to turn and look at her coworker who's never been to a Christian church before, and there's tears streaming down her cheeks. Why? Because a chronically anxious world has no idea where you get that. It is the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saints who contradict it most. Jesus said, how can the guests fast, or how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? You do not fast at a wedding reception, and that's what this is. You are in a season of joy, KXC. The bridegroom is with you, and here's why all this is happening. Because it is the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saints who contradict it most. It's because the Spirit of God wants to resuscitate the church in London, wants to breathe life, supernatural life, back into our lungs. And there is no greater contradiction for the culture of our day than joy. Because London knows intensity. That's what got you here. And London knows indulgence by my own control. That's what keeps you here. But London knows nothing about the kind of joy that transcends them both. Love and kinship and suffering and intimacy. That kind of joy. That's what God is forming you into, KXC. And that's what this whole joy thing is really about in the end. It's about becoming a holy contradiction. And when it takes, you will be a people of unrecognizable inclusive love and willing suffering suffering and rule-breaking, borderline irreverent but irresistible intimacy. 
And so I want to close, we're going to close the weekend in just a moment by coming forward to this communion table, to the feast that Jesus prepared to whet our appetites for the feast that will never end. And I want to lead you forward with these words from Philip Yancey. This table is different. It isn't where sinners find Christ, but where sons and daughters celebrate being found. Maybe someday, instead of solemnly making our way to the table, we should dance for joy. Maybe we should sing every born-again song we know, and maybe we should tell our homecoming stories and laugh like people who no longer fear death. Maybe we should ask anybody if anybody wants seconds and hold our little cups high and toast to lost sinners found and dead brothers alive. That's joy. So let's celebrate. And as we do... Jesus, will you form us into the best kind of contradiction? Can we stand together?